Dr. Amalia Ganyus-Malka, welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today is South Africa's Deputy Minister of Human Settlements, Ms. Zoe Cotter-Fredericks. She has been a Member of Parliament since 1994. She holds a degree in social work from the University of Western Cape, as well as a Senior Certificate in Economics from the University of South Africa. She has served as Chairperson of the Portfolio Committee on Housing and also served in various other committees. The Deputy Minister was Chairperson of the Provincial ANC Women's League since 2003 and has served in the Western Cape Steering Committee of the Progressive Women's Movement. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dr. I'm excited to be here today. We are excited too. And looking at your portfolio, you've got extensive work within women from the Progressive Women's Movement as well as being on the ANC Women's League. But to start off with, Deputy Minister, you've served South Africa for many years and in that space you've held numerous positions. Can you share with us a few of the landmarks in your career? Thank you very much. I just want to say from up front, so that tomorrow the uh, no, newspapers don't follow me, that I don't have the degree of social work from the University of Western Cape, but I studied until third year social work at the University of Western Cape. It's my university, and I graduated with BCom at the University of Western Cape. So it's an exciting moment. I must say my achievements as a woman was being a member of parliament, I think that was the first achievement of, of my life, to be a member of parliament and serving on portfolio committees there. I served in the portfolio committee of sport. I became a whip in the portfolio committee on defense. And I became a chairperson of the housing portfolio committee in 2002. And in 2009, I was appointed deputy minister of human settlements by President Jacob Zuma. And I'm still a deputy president of Human Settlement. I'm excited about that. The exciting moment about being in Human Settlements in particular is the fact that you are touching the heart and souls of our people out there. Because when you provide a house to a person, particularly to women, you see the smile in those faces. You see the smiles in those children, in those houses. So it's changing the lives of the people for the better. One of the things that I've also been, I've been uh, serving in the executive, national executive of the ANC Women's League. I'm currently serving as an NEC member of the ANC Women's League. So I have lots of portfolios in my life. I don't think this prog- it will do this program good to enumerate all of them. But I'm just s- saying my excitement is the fact that I'm one of those members of parliament who drafted the constitution. So I'm proud of myself being part of the team that drafted the constitution. I served on theme committee three. So I'm very, very excited about that history. And also I served at the gender advisory committee of CODESA. So I've been there. I think that space is known. So I don't have to delve on that area. 
I think that you've had such a rich experience in all of these elements. And what for me stands out is that you were there from day one in terms of becoming a member of parliament in 1994, before the constitution was formed and being one of the contributing members. It's a significant legacy to see your country evolve from almost a blank slate. It's an exciting moment, really, because when I joined the African National Congress as a child, at the time, I never thought that I would be one day a member of parliament or even deputy minister. When I left the country to join the Mkondo Wesizwe in exile, never in my mind did I thought I would come back alive, let alone being in parliament. So all being traveling, being in those countries, served seven years in Cuba. I'm excited about the history that I've gathered in terms of my experience in Cuba bringing it back to my country. So it's very, very exciting. And to be now in human settlements, having been in this portfolio, what I've cre- worked with, with Minister Sosulu, which is very, very exciting, is the fact that we have agreed that 30% of the project of human settlements must go to women-led construction companies. So it's a milestone on its own. That's why I was in, in, in this graduation ceremony today where 105 women got their certificates from Gibbs, a Gibbs, which is a, a business institute, which we are training, it's an academic institute, we are training these women, 105 women, to own their own businesses, to own their own cooperatives, so that at the end of the day, they themselves take part in the building of houses, take part in being suppliers of material, take part in every aspect of economy, so that they don't only confine themselves to human settlements only. They, it, it is everywhere. The area is rich for them to be there. We are saying they might strive to be the best ever people that we have ever produced. I want to tell you that the 105 joins the 200 women that we have trained so far in this program. So, so far we trained 305 in this particular program. It's partnership of Gibbs with Department of Human Settlements and NHBRC is driven by NHBRC on our side. So we are very, very excited. And we, we, we saw a member of Public Works who said Public Works must also join in. We would like to grow this area of training of women because women are passionate about what they do. And even the houses that they build are bigger. The houses that they build are beautiful. And I don't want to sit here and talk about seeing that I'm only glorifying women. I want you to go and see the products, the women, the, the houses that we have seen that are built by women, even with the Gavin Beggy Awards of the department. The best women, there are best women contractors, which means the women will build the best houses. The social housing, the best women contractor in social housing, those are women. The best people's housing process built by women. So we are saying. Women do have the know-how, they do have the skills, they need to be capacitated. They need access to finance, they need the skills to be developed, they need every level of ensuring that even in in terms of legislation, it must be slant towards empowerment of women. And you've given a very unique perspective in terms of the involvement of women within human settlements. We've also got the other dimension in terms of the human settlement's purpose. 
And I read that housing is obviously a constitutional right in South Africa, where according to Chapter 2 of the Bill of Rights, everyone has right to have access to adequate housing. It's one of the biggest tasks for government to fulfill. So in what you're saying, we've got government who's doing their job, but we're now seeing this draw of women, construction workers, to contribute. And I wanted to find out how are we doing in terms of development initiatives that are underway and if there is anything towards a particular focus on women from a point of view of being the beneficiaries and the recipients of these programs. The beauty about housing is that the majority we've built says far more than 4 million houses as Department of Housing. And the beneficiaries of those houses in the main have been women. So they are beneficiaries in terms of housing. In terms of the building of housing, we are saying that 30% of our projects should go to women contractors, but we are not confined in terms of that space. There are women who have been in the housing space for a very long time. There are women who are now in grade 9. When we are in grade 9, it means we can even build a school. We can even build flats. There are women who are level grade 9 in terms of, of, of building of houses. So we are proud of the track record of women. Some of them are in grade 7, some of them are in grade 8. So it's exciting. They've benefited in the, within the human settlement sector in terms of in the main. But what we are calling upon as Department of Human Settlements, we are calling upon other departments to join in on the empowerment of women because we don't want it to confine it in the human settlement space. When we went to Beijing in 1995, when we came back, we came back with an ethos that every department should have a, a, a gender focal point so that the empowerment of women should not be confined on one department, that it, it must be mainstreamed in the entire economy. Every single department must have the, the focus area where we focus about in terms of economic empowerment of women. In fact, saying make sure that the, the budget of the department goes towards women suppliers or whatever the department does. But we are not confining the empowerment of women only to government. We're calling upon the private sector to take the initiative as well, to join in hands with us, because this can not only be the responsibility of one sector of our society, the, the, the private sector must also take tune in the empowering of women. We know we have seen beautiful initiatives done by private sector. We have seen women excelling in their respective portfolios. But what we are saying, it's not enough. We can do more. But we are also calling the CPOs and NGOs as well. Because we cannot only have a situation that you are only focusing, pointing fingers on others, while in your corner you are doing nothing, you are folding hands. Let's join hands, let's have our hands on deck and ensure that as South Africans, the empowerment of women becomes the, the cornerstone of our work every single day of our life. And it becomes a sustainable component. Yes. You mentioned earlier the integration that you're trying to achieve between different departments, that it's not just about human settlements, but it's about involving public works and other departments. And I 
learned from a human settlements point of view that it's not just about housing. It is about looking at spatial arrangements, making sure that we've got the right transport infrastructure, making sure that people don't have to travel huge distances, that their work is in proximity. So there's a lot of layering and integration that happens in human settlements. It's, it's complex. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. You put it very well when you say it's complex. It is very complex. But we, as Department of Human Settlements, we are very, very excited because in this space, we are able to say we are part and parcel of the agenda of, of ensuring that we, in terms of space, we are integrating our space. We have what is called new urban agenda. New urban agenda. New Open Agenda is arrived from the Habitat Tree Conference, which was held last year in Quito. In that conference, we pushed the fact that it's important that we should integrate our space. We must not only working as Department of Human Settlement, we must work with Water Affairs, we must work with COCTA, we must work with other departments so that at the end of the day, the special the Department of Transport is critical. So at the end of the day, in the city center, you are able to have all the necessary infrastructure so that we, when we house our people, we house them in well-located lands. But more than that, we are saying we need to work with Department of Culture. They've got what is called IUDF, Integrated Urban Development Framework from Cocta. This framework is a framework which is not only coming from COCTA. Coming from COCTA, working hand-in-hand hand with Department of Human Settlement, with Department of Transport, with Department of Rural Development, the idea is to look, zoom in on the issue of space and integrating our, 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 our communities, removing the apartheid special framework and putting in place a new kind of an approach that takes into account the people-driven approach in occupying the land be it in the city, be it in the rural areas, so that we take into account the fact that people in, in, in these areas are agents of change. Bring them in. They'll be able to give the footprint of how best we can utilize the space for the benefit of all. We've spoken about your portfolio and the details that it entails. Now I'd like to turn towards more of the gender focus. And one of the things that I've unpacked is that women around the world tend to be responsible for most of the unpaid labor, which is essential to sustaining households and economies. So cooking, cleaning, raising the children, subsistence farming. And according to UN Women, women carry out two and a half times more unpaid housework than men. And as a result, they've got less time to participate in paid labor or they work longer hours to incorporate the paid and unpaid labor. How do you think we can promote a more equitable distribution of unpaid work between men and women? As a gender activist, I have always been advocating for the fact that the work that is done by women at home must be paid work. Because at the end of the day, the successful men who, who is a, who's, who, who's in the offices, wherever they are, somebody at home did that work for them. And that person is called a wife, is at home. That work is not paid for. We believe that when we come, come to the issue of unpaid work with regard to women, 
we, we, we need to comb our society because they seem to be dealing with this issue in a manner that's not helpful to all of us. In fact, what women do in their homes is not even taken as part of the GDP while you calculate the finance of the country, which definitely is completely unpaid. Yes. So we are saying it's about time that we commercialize these areas of work and make an understanding that these ordinary women and, and girls in their homes, they do tremendous work that has made this country what it is today, but they are insignificant in terms of the statistics. And that cannot be the case. We can't continue in that fashion. We, 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 we are saying, of course, we don't want women to stay at home, to be responsible in the, in, in, in the old sense of being domestic workers in their respective homes, their places in society. So it's a choice of a woman to be at home or to go to work. So women should not be confined to those spaces. We've opened that, that the women's role is in society. So it's the question of staying at home should be a choice. And you touched on you touched on another point in terms of this tradition and the tension between women doing domestic work, women aiming to seek a professional career or, or develop an academic education to help advance themselves. And often we are held back from tradition and cultural expectations. How do you think, or what advice rather, would you give women who are confronted with that type of situation? That is why we encourage women to go to school. That's the first, in, the first instance. And if they have not even gone to school, there are after-hours classes where women can go for their own uh, economic, uh, for their own educational empowerment. Because once you are not edu- empowered educationally, you're not going to be able to stand the test of time in terms of pressures of home. For example, if you're a professional woman, you get married today, and then when you get married and that man of yours changes the mind, says you can know, can stay at home now, we can have children now, your, your profession must wait for now, for the next five years, until we're able to bring up our children, then you can start again the other time. That's very wrong. It's totally impractical. It's, it's, the world changes within that five-year period. It's a completely different environment. Exactly. And also the, the woman, in terms of, of, of she's getting old as a person. So by the time those kids get they are up and running on their own, you are not able to go. You have arthritis, you've got that, you've got all these other nonsenses. So there's no way that you can postpone the development of a woman. Every time that a woman is, is making a choice of changing their lives for the better, they must be given tools to do so. They must be actually empowered to do the kind of work they want to do, irrespective of the conditions at home. We are saying that the fact that you are coming from impoverished families does not define our destiny. And that should be the, the kind of approach we take to our women. The fact that you are in the informal settlements doesn't mean that you'll end up in the informal settlement for the rest of your life. You must stand up and be counted, changing your life for the better. So it means that we can be a better person, irrespective of whether your parents were poor or not. You can be a better person. The issue is about you. I think that's a very important statement.
Today, we're talking to South Africa's Deputy Minister of Human Settlements, Ms. Zoe Cotter-Fredericks. Hi, my name is Yvonne Chakachaka, and I'm UNICEF and Rollback Malaria Goodwill Ambassador. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in the struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, a program against social ills such as racism, socio-economic class division and gender-based violence. Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amalia Balka every week on this day at this time. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we're talking to South Africa's Deputy Minister of Human Settlements, Zoe Cotter-Fredericks. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. In the previous segment of a conversation, Deputy Minister shared some of her history and experiences and the various landmarks that have taken place in her career. We also spoke about some of the developments within human settlements with particular emphasis on housing and looking at women not just in the context of being pure end-of-the-line beneficiaries but contributing to the development, looking at having 30% of human settlement work and projects being contributed towards women. Deputy Minister, we last left off with a, a very important quote that you spoke about where you refer to the fact that it doesn't matter where you come from. Where you come from. It matters where you're, going. where you're going. And now I'd like to spend some time talking about getting more women into the workplace, how we can do that if we need to have gender quotas. I know some people think that they're controversial and don't support it. They all go for meritocracy. I have a slightly different, different opinion. Mm. So if you can tell us your experiences and, and what you'd recommend. I think something that needs a, a, a lot of discussion, the issue of getting women to work. Um, I think one of the things that we are doing as the Department of Settlements, as I said earlier on, is to encourage women to be builders of houses themselves. That's taking women from home to work. And we are saying that can be replicated by other departments across government. I think the issue of taking women to work starts with a girl child. Because it is our focus on the girl child that will take the issue of the impoverishment of our communities. Because if we focus on the girl child with maths and science, they will, the, the skies would be a limit. And it's important that we stick to the issue of quotas with regard to the women empowerment. And I don't think so class is going to help us in, in anyhow. Because you cannot say when the playing fields are not leveled and we want to introduce meritocracy because you are going to leave many people out. So that's why the issue of quotas are, are critical because they are tended to empower people who would not even have the idea of getting out of their homes to work. So I would have loved, I, would, I wish I could be in a society where there would be quotas everywhere 
that to me that would take us to, to greater heights as South Africa. I'm just imagining myself, let's say, we say got a certain percentage of, of women must go to education, they must edu- get educated. Even now, the numbers of, 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 of learners are telling us in schools that the majority of learners there are girl child. So there is an improvement in that direction. So the issue is about how many women who are still at work, women who are 35 and below, because that would be a crisis. If you've got many unemployed from 35 and, and above staying at home and doing nothing, it means definitely a situation that we need to go out there and use these quotas and I- make sure that each and every department does something. The, I know the government has got this program of EPWP, Experience Public Works Program, which is intended, and C- CPWP, which is Community Works Program, which is intended to ensure that people who are not working in our homes, in our communities, are able to have some form of a stipend working two days a week or three days a week. That's, 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 that's also positive. We can welcome that kind of a program. We can also welcome the program of human settlements, what we term youth brigade, which also targeting youth which is unemployed. We've got about more than 100 who have graduated this far from this program and they've been placed with our entities in terms of work. But we are also saying that we, we are moving in that direction of having women in our degrees because we have human settlements degrees. And in those human settlement degrees, I want to know, I want to go back to the department and find out how many in those degrees we are recruiting are girls or young women. Because if we are talking about quotas of projects without looking in terms of education, because we've got a degree in Nelson Mandela University, which is a human settlements degree. We have a degree at Forte, similarly. We have a degree in Mangosutu Butuele's University in KZN. So we have a number of universities, even including CPUT. So we have a number of universities where we empower young people. But what I've not noticed, I've not taken care of, is to find out in the spread how many young girls or young women are there. Because obviously that's the pipeline that feeds exactly. the system to, to bring them on to the next level. Mm-hmm. And on the, the next level, for me, that's about women's leadership. And I think that having women's leadership is vitally important. We need to have role models. We need to have mentorship. But at the same time, in order to get those women leaders, they've had to confront various challenges to get there. And uh, I think political leadership in Africa is one which really touches sensitive points like culture and religion. How have you managed to overcome that? Okay. The issue of culture and religion, first and foremost, as a freedom fighter, I was able to run away from that because um, I've got military background. So I don't have to go, I had to bypass some of these issues because I've justified I'm a soldier. So, but I must take into account that there are women who are at the same level as myself who are not able to bypass those stumbling blocks because there are stumbling blocks in, 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 in our way. But what we are saying 
if you empower a woman, you empower the nation. So, and what is good about the issue of culture and so forth, we take culture that is able to take us forward. A culture which is backward, we leave mm. it behind. And culture is dynamic. It and can culture change. change. And what we are saying in terms of Chapter 2 of the Constitution is that the issue of, 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 of the Constitution is supreme, irrespective of what the culture traditions are saying. But as long as it, it doesn't go against the, con- the grain of the Constitution, mm. it's fine. But if it's against the Constitution, then the, the Constitution supersedes. So we actually have to be more robust in terms of using the Constitution exactly. and legislation to, to vindicate ourselves when we feel that uh, an injustice has incurred. You've said it. It's like that. It's true. Now, to. turning towards more of a personal perspective, one of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of work is about some of the factors that they consider have been key to their success. Some people speak about hard work, others talk about their mothers or some other triggers. So can you share with us what have been some of the key factors that have driven your success? My pillar of strength, I must say, um, is my mother. Although she's late, she was a source of strength in terms of me going forward. And more than that, as my development politically goes, my strength has been the ANC, which has groomed me, which has politicized me, which has given me the tools, which has deployed me. Because being in Cuba, I was deployed. I mean, if they don't recognize you, they don't send you to do the work, your education, uh, even your, your, your education militarily, is limit, limited. But once you get deployed, you are able to exercise and execute the mission in a manner that, is, that, that shows that you do have extraordinary expertise. But there are people in my life that I need to talk about um, Oliver Reginald Tambo is one of them. And especially now as we celebrate his 100th year. Yes, because I'm talking about going to Cuba, I'm going, talking about going there and Russia and so forth. But the person who deployed me in those places was the President Reginald Tambo. And we're celebrating his 100th years now. So w- I would like to say in his memory that we honor you, Tata. And we think what you've done for us in exile is more than what the, our parents could have done. And we, and we think we owe it to you to continue. I think that's a very special sentiment. Thank you for, for sharing. What would you say have been some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up? I'd, I'd imagine Cuba must have been a particular period. It is exciting. It was exciting. It was exciting in the sense that in Cuba, I went to Cuba with plus minus 100 um, MK cadres. Our going to Cuba was to train them. I think this leadership of O.R. Tambo had a foresight that we will be liberated. But none of us thought about that. So they sent me to Cuba with about 100 uh, students, soldiers, and they were to study militarily 
in terms of the military academy. And after military academy, they were to take other roles in terms of society, to train for engineers and all other courses there. I think the beauty about it, to be there with students, is to see the change in their lives. You You see a soldier today and you see such a qualified person, an engineer or a doctor. So it was gratifying to be there and be part of the change that I want to see in society. And most importantly, my stay in Cuba touched me because I was able to interact with Swapo, the people of Namibia, because we share the school together. It's, it's called Hendrik Fedfoot. So, so it's, it's named after the hero of Namibia. So by the time Namibia was getting its independence in 1990, we were able to take their goodies, assist them in going to the ship, taking them back to, to Namibia. And some of us cried because we had been remaining behind and none of us knew when we would get our own liberation. And a short while later, a short while later, a short while later, it happened. We saw Madiba getting out of prison, and it was unbelievable. We saw ANC coming back inside the country. It was unbelievable. Now, Deputy Minister, you have had an incredibly diverse career and set of experiences. Given all of this, what would you say has been the best lesson that you've learned throughout your career? The best lesson that I've learned in my career is to learn to trust people. Trust myself first and to trust other people. You can give benefit of the doubt here and there, but there's nothing that you can do alone. Whatever you do, you do with people. And these the people who can take you from phase one to phase two. You're right. You can't do things by yourself. No man is an island. No. And lastly, in closing our conversation today, could you please share a few words of wisdom or inspiration for younger women who are listening to us on the continent today? Young people, we've been there. It's about time that you take your rightful place in society and claim your space. And I can say the opportunities out there are enormous. Only the sky is a limit. And I know you can do it. I'm very proud of all of you. Try it. You'll do it. There's no time to lose hope. The future is much brighter than you think. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful having you on the show today. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to South Africa's Deputy Minister of Human Settlements, Ms. Zoe Cotter-Fredericks.